0: Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your faithfulness to us. Thank you for your promises, so many of which we have, seen come true in our lives we've seen how good you are we have tasted and we believe and we know father I pray that tonight you would not only further our acquiring of information but provide real inspiration to touch us in the deepest part of our beings that we would know what certain truths mean to us, how our response is to be to them, lest we become like some of the people that Jesus denounced, even in the passage we're about to read. We set this this time aside for you to speak, and we pray that you would in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I do feel that some people have a picture of Jesus that is a false picture. I call it the Sunday school Jesus. It's how they've chosen to picture Jesus in their minds. It's a nice picture, but it's an inaccurate one. Uh, Jesus, the one who liked to pet little children on the head and heal birds who had broken wings and sit over in the sidelines just sort of smiling as people would walk by and that's Jesus gentle Jesus meek and mild look upon this little child Jesus was wonderfully gentle and compassionate at the same time he could be very confrontational it really depended on who you were in front of him If you are trying to put on a show, put on an act, put on a mask, play the hypocrite, or be sincere, confess your need, and be who you really are. So, chapter 15 helps us to dispense of the Sunday school Jesus and gives us the real Jesus as he confronts a group of scribes and Pharisees. In many ways, Jesus Christ was radical. He was a non-conformist. He did not conform to the societal standards of his day, to the spiritual religious practices of his day. He would hold tenaciously to the ancient truth that was God's revealed Word, but he would bristle hard against traditions, religious traditions that covered over the truth or made it hard to Access the truth as we're going to see here Now I think it's helpful for you to identify a few groups in the New Testament You read their names, but if you've read the Bible through and you go from the Old Testament to the New Testament You wonder where these guys come from Because they're they're not mentioned in the Old Testament But you open the New Testament and suddenly you have groups like scribes Pharisees Sadducees Herodians Who are they and where do they come from? Not all of them, but many of them appeared in that 400 years gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Jews had been in captivity, you know this, for 70 years. When they came back humbled, desirous to do the will of God nationally and to please God... Groups formed. First of all, there were the scribes. That was a group that really was started by Ezra in the Old Testament. He's called a scribe, and he is regarded as the first scribe. Originally, the scribe would copy portions of the Scripture, the Old Testament Torah, the first five books of Moses, and make them available to people when they came back from the captivity. But eventually... The scribes wrote down comments and debated those comments, interpretation of portions of the law, asking questions like, what would Moses do in this situation or that situation? And they would discuss and write those down. And those comments became a law to themselves. It's sort of like if you get a good study Bible that has notes by an author at the bottom of the page. And you start regarding the notes at the bottom of the page on equal footing with the words above the notes, the text of Scripture itself. The oral law was something that was written down, discussed, codified by the scribes. Eventually, by the time of Jesus Christ in the New Testament, the scribes, though they started well, became nitpickers, became those who were more interested in the letter of the law than the spirit of the law itself. A second group were Pharisees. From a Hebrew word, parashim. The word Pharisee means to be separated. And they started out so well. The Pharisees began after the Babylonian captivity with a heartfelt desire that we're going to be separated from the world, separated from foreign influences, from idolatry, totally sold out to God. But as time went on, they became so separated, it became ridiculous. And they became very legalistic. Third group was the Sadducees. And I'm not going to make the typical crack that I make when we get to this. The Sadducees were the liberals. They did not believe in the oral law. They did not believe in miracles. They did not believe in a physical, literal resurrection from the dead. They were liberals. They were more politically inclined. They were wealthy aristocrats that had a social conscience, it was more about social activity and uh, less about what the Bible says. They wanted to make peace with people like the Romans and just, you know, not buck the system much, but just live in peace with all, all people, but not really believe in the text of Scripture. They really aren't enemies of Jesus much in the New Testament. Until we get to the book of Acts, they become enemies of the early church. And it's easy to see why. The early church believed and taught and preached the resurrection from the dead everywhere they went. They didn't believe in the resurrection. Hence, the Sadducees became the enemies during that period. A fourth group are called the Herodians. The Herodians were Jewish nationalists who sided with the Herod family that we discussed last time, and wanted to keep the Herod family in power. After all, it was Herod the Great who built the Jews, their wonderful temple, and allowed the temple worship to go on. So they sided with the Herods, and they were sort of in link with them. Jesus did not go looking for trouble. Trouble found Him. And he was unafraid of the confrontation, though he didn't look for trouble when, when there was a problem, an issue, he would confront it head-on. And one of the biggest problems Jesus dealt with were a group, in all of those different groups that I mentioned, that he gives a new name to. He doesn't call them scribes, Pharisees, Herodians, Sadducees, he calls them hypocrites. A term they were familiar with. It was a Greek term. It spoke about an actor on the stage who would live his life behind a mask. That's what the actors were like back then. They didn't assume bit parts like they do today. They just wore a mask, a sad mask or a happy mask. And they would have speaking parts. But the idea of a, of a hypocrite was somebody who lives behind a mask, an actor. Every area of life has its hypocrites. The worst are spiritual hypocrites. And Jesus unloads whenever He dealt with spiritual hypocrisy. He didn't hold anything back. He didn't pull any of His punches. He let them have it. You'll really see this when we get to chapter 23, which will be a while, but we'll get there. There was a pastor who was visited by a man because the man's brother died. The pastor knew the brothers. They were notorious in the town for uh, being scandalous, bar hoppers, partiers, scoundrels, womanizers, uh, just low-lifes. He knew that. But one of the brothers died. and. the remaining brother went to the pastor and said, I'd like you to do my brother's funeral. pastor said, I'd be happy to. And uh, the surviving brother said, there's just one hitch. In your funeral message, I want you to say that my brother was a saint. pastor said, I can't do that. I'd be lying. We both know, the whole community knows he wasn't a saint. He was a scoundrel. I know that, Pastor, but it's my brother. This is is the last memorial for him, and I'd like you to say that my brother was a saint. Would you do that? If you do it, there's a lot of money in it for you. pastor thought about it and he said, All right, I can do that. The day for the funeral came and the pastor stood up said several words during that message and then he said these words. All of you here today know about this man who is lying in the casket here. He was a scoundrel. He was a womanizer. He was a drunk. He was a drug addict. He was a lowlife. But compared to his brother sitting here in the front row, the man was a saint. He didn't want to be a hypocrite. (laughs) He kept His promise. He told the truth. We read in verse 1, Then the scribes and the Pharisees, who were from Jerusalem, came to Jesus, saying... Now, it's good to link one chapter to another chapter. Jesus has been healing people in Galilee, miraculously. I mean, people who are blind, they can now open their eyes and see things they never could before. Those who had no hearing can hear sounds they've never heard before. People who were lame could walk. Those with withered hands had full use of them. The dead were being raised. And that kind of news spreads quickly and attracts attention. One thing for sure, the doctors in Galilee could take a vacation while Jesus was around that 's one nice thing for them they didn't really need them anymore for a while because Jesus just would touch a person, make them completely whole. But because the news of that would spread, it would incur lots of interest, especially from the religious hierarchy of the Jewish people down in Jerusalem. now Jerusalem's a hundred miles away from Galilee. You have to be intentional about making a walk, making a trip from Jerusalem to Galilee. But probably the rulers of the synagogues in that area made a request that a special delegation approved by the 70 ruling elders, the Sanhedrin, would check this Jesus out because He had been healing so long. And so they came. The scribes and the Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus saying... Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. This was probably a public rebuke. Jesus spent so much of His time out in public, whether it was in-house a teaching or addressing the crowds from town to town or out in the countryside. And probably the delegation came with their long robes and they would just make a scene as they would walk right up to wherever Jesus was and publicly ask this kind of a question. Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? What did they mean by that? They meant the oral law. The oral law, the tradition of the elders was the body of rabbinic literature that had been discussed and written down, codified as I mentioned, after years and years, known as the Mishnah and then the Talmud. And that's a lot of literature. Uh, The Jewish Talmud had 63 books and is typically printed in 18 volumes. In many cases, those adjudications or those... Findings by the ancient rabbis or the scribes that were argued upon and then written down were as Binding To the devout Jew as the Word of God the scripture itself There was a famous rabbi in Jewish history called Rabbi Akiba He was a contemporary actually of Matthew who wrote the gospel Rabbi Akiba talked about the tradition of Judaism, the many traditions, as a fence around the law. (laughs) Hasayeg ha-Torah, it was called in Hebrew. The fence of the law. The idea is that when we have our traditions, we have them so that it will help you not break what the Word of God says. So you keep these traditions and, and will impose enough of them and will make them steep enough so that you can't even get close to breaking the law. That is the letter of the law, though you could break the heart of the law, because once you have lots of rules and regulations, you have a problem. You can perform rules and regulations mechanically. Your heart doesn't have to be in in it. There's no real sincerity. It doesn't have to be. It could be. It's best if it is. But you can go through the motions and do it perfunctorily, mechanically, without real thought, and break the very heart of the law itself. But they came from Jerusalem and they noticed probably at a meal that the disciples were just sort of digging in, eating away, And so Jesus is approached by this austere delegation. Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. This has nothing to do with hygiene. This has everything to do with ritual. I mean, to travel a hundred miles and say... You know, I noticed you didn't wash your hands. That's kind of of like crazy. I mean, my mom was a stickler for me washing my hands, but she wouldn't do this. It has nothing to do with hygiene. Not like, you should clean your hands before you eat. There was a tradition, an elaborate hand-washing ceremony that had been added in the oral law. It's not in the law of God. It's not in the Bible. But it was demanded. Now, here's the deal. Your hands would be placed like this before you eat a meal, up. Water would be poured from the fingertips. It would run down the hands. You'd bend at the wrist, and the water would fall off the wrist. Um, Then you would reverse that, and water would be poured on the wrist, down to the fingers, number two. Number three, you would dry your hands by moving your hands, an open palm in a fist, open palm in a fist, and dry it like that. The pious Jew did that not only before every meal, but between every course of a meal. Won't find it in the Bible, but they did it. It was a tradition of the elders, and the disciples didn't do it. And so they approached Jesus, and and they mentioned that. I've got to tell you another uh, little tradition. Superstition has a way of working its way into any religious system. I, I think of this what I'm about to tell you, and I automatically think I know Christians that are as superstitious as this. The Jews believed that there was a demon called Shibtah that could attach itself to your hands while you were asleep. And because it was on your hands, if you touched food, you could ingest the demon by eating the food. So that's why you had to wash your hands elaborately to wash away the demon. Which is sort of interesting that all you've got to do is wash your hands and the demon goes away. It's pretty cool. <laughs> but it put people in fear. So people would go through the ritual and the regulation out of fear, not out of love, not out of real sincerity, but I don't want a demon inside of me. And so look what Jesus said. He answered and said to them, Why do you transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? You see, the question they ask is, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? Jesus says, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? So the argument here isn't about Scripture. It's about tradition. Tradition. Remember Fiddler on the Roof? Remember Tavia? And that opening song about tradition, and he was happy that tradition preserved the customs of Judaism and would bind the people together generation after generation. But he discovered over time that which preserved the Jewish people also perforated his own relationship with his daughter who wanted to date somebody and marry somebody he didn't approve of. It was a two-edged sword. So this is like the New Testament equivalent of fiddler on the roof. This is Pharisee on the roof. (laughs) Why do you transgress the commandment of God? Because of your tradition. For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. He's quoting the fifth commandment. But you say, Whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God. Then he need not honor his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. What was Jesus speaking about? He's speaking about a way that scripture had been twisted by these traditionalists in the oral law. They had a thing called korban. And korban meant dedicated. So let's say you had something and your parents were suffering and they needed to be taken care of. You had extra cash or you had an extra bed or you had an extra chair that they could have and they, they don't have a chair. And so they come and they say, Son, your mother and I were not doing very well. We could really use your help. You could say, if you were this heartless and this much of a creep, you could say, Dad... Boy, I'm so sorry, and I'd love to help you, but this chair, this bed, and this money in my bank account is korban. It's dedicated to God. I can't touch it. Because it has been dedicated, you've gone through the formula of simply saying korban over it. I've dedicated this to God. Now it's for God's exclusive purpose, just like anything that was used in the temple. Here's the catch. Though it was dedicated to God, you could still keep it at home and use it. If at any time you wanted to use it for yourself, you could just use it for yourself. And then later on, you could say korban over it again and dedicate it again. So it was a scam, and it was a way of getting out of the plainly written fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother. So Jesus says, by this, you are making the commandment, that clear, unmistakable principle of Scripture of no effect by your tradition be careful of traditions we've always done it that way is the mantra of many churches and many groups within churches don't change anything we've always done it that way okay i'm glad you've always done it that way but are you sure that that way that you've always done it is according to the scripture or is it just a convenient way of you applying it There's nothing wrong with tradition. It reminds us of important truths. Paul said that we were to keep the traditions that he passed down to the church. But those were the traditions that were rooted in Scripture. You see, Peter was able to say when on the day of Pentecost, they said, what is that? He said, this is that which was spoken of by the prophet. And he was able to point to the Scripture to validate a practice that was going on. We should always be able to do the same. And traditions within spiritual faith communities can be some of the most destructive and obstructive things that prohibit spiritual life. So Jesus said, you are canceling God's Word by your tradition. So look at verse 7. Hypocrites. Boy, I'd hate to be called that by Jesus. Well, did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, he's saying, look, I know who you guys are. You guys fulfill the very scripture that you're so meticulous about memorizing and keeping. You're keeping the scripture. And here's the scripture. These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Nobody likes the word hypocrite. It's a scathing word. It's an indicting word. Anybody who's called a hypocrite, boy, that, uh, that gets us. But Jesus used the word 23 times in the New Testament. 21 of those 23 times speaking about religious hypocrites. And again, in chapter 23, he will really unload. The reason he calls them hypocrites is simple. Because they preached by the yard, but practiced by the inch. And so Jesus dealt with them by the foot. (laughs) Gave them a swift spiritual kick. Hypocrites, you're fulfilling what Isaiah the prophet said, that it's all mouth, it's all words, but it's far from your heart. You're doing it in a very mechanical way, but your heart is not in it. When he had called the multitude to himself, He said to them... So just picture the scene, wherever Jesus was when the delegation came, and with their robes and their pious announcement, asked the question, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? Jesus said publicly to them, Why do you transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? So He just sort of put them in their place. Then Jesus speaks to the crowd about the Pharisees. When He called the multitude to Himself, He said to them, Hear and understand, that is pay very close attention to what I'm about to say. Not what goes into the mouth defiles a man. But what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. Okay, stop right there. If we were reading the book of Leviticus, the law, the scripture, we would discover that certain things that go into a man do defile a man. There were certain foods that God prohibited them from eating. An animal that doesn't chew the cud, prohibited. An animal that doesn't have cloven hooves, prohibited. A fish that doesn't have fins and scales, prohibited. Mollusks, prohibited. All of those were prohibitions in the law, so that if you eat them, you could be defiled. However... The reason God gave those commandments in the Old Covenant was to protect them in their physical health, in their well-being. They didn't have the capacities that we have now. So God said, separate yourself from them. Clean and unclean animals. It was all a means of protecting them. And what it was, was a picture of defilement and a picture of sin. God never said that those things were... Sinful, he says, don't eat them or you'll be defiled. And then there was rituals to get back on track for that. But they were a picture of the defilement of sin. And it was to be a picture of something, the outward was to be a picture of something that was inward. So here Jesus says, not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of his mouth, that defiles a man. Religious people, traditionalists, people who lean toward their tradition more than Scripture and make it all about keeping the rules and the regulation, they place all of the emphasis on outward when God places it all on the inward. Now, I'm not going to cover this too much in depth because we've done it in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus would say, you've heard that it was said by those of old, and he would quote a law, but I say unto you, and then he revealed that the real issue God was dealing with wasn't just the outward behavior, but the inward attitude, whether it was lust or murder, etc. He was dealing with the heart attitude, the inward, not the outward. Look at verse 12. Then his disciples came and said to him, this is probably sometime afterward, he talked to the crowd about the scribes and the Pharisees, about what what this conversation going on. His disciples came to him and said, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? Now you answer that question. Did Jesus know that they were offended? Of course he did. He meant to offend them. That was the intention of it. He was undercutting and undermining their false trust in their legalistic religion, on purpose. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, look upon this little child. Do you know that you offended them? Jesus going, "Uh uh-huh. Don't you guys get it? They came publicly. In front of this crowd, I want this crowd to know that the leaders they've been following have placed the wrong emphasis on the wrong things when it's all about the heart. But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. What does that remind you of? The parable of the tares and the wheat, remember? The wheat are true believers. The tares are false believers. They look at the beginning stages very similar. The Pharisees sounded so sincere, so religious. They're, they're really believing and really trying to get other people to follow God with all of their heart. And they're offended by the truth. Now mark this. One of the marks of a hypocrite is they will be offended by truth. A hypocrite will always be offended by the truth of Scripture. They hate the truth of Scripture. It's not ambiguous enough for them. There's not a lot of latitude in the black and white of the Bible. And a mark of a hypocrite is their reaction to the truth is they'll be offended by it. Another mark of a hypocrite, according to these verses, is that they are destined for judgment. Judgment. Just wait, Jesus said. There's coming a time. Because they're not God's plant. They're not planted by my Father. They're the tares in the wheat. They're going to be uprooted. They're not going to last. They're not going to be able to withstand God's judgment. They're destined for judgment. So, I find it interesting that in this case, Jesus is condemning the sin and the sinner together. Not one or the other, both. 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 If they persist in the sin of hypocrisy, their doom is judgment. That's their end. They will be uprooted. Now, look, Jesus says this. Let them alone. Leave them alone. That could be translated, stay away from them. Don't mingle with them. Don't be around people who are perpetually degrading and denigrating the Word of God. Stay far away from that type. Stay far away from the hypocrite. Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. Then Peter answered and said to him, Got to love Peter. Uh, could you like explain this parable to us? Peter still thinking about food. Oh, you were talking about like eating stuff and what goes into a man. Could you, could you like go over that one more time? Now, when the clergy don't understand spiritual truth, you know you got problems. Peter's been following Jesus for two years. Two years. He's got some answers right and some answers wrong. But two years. So Jesus says, here's his response to him. Are you also still without understanding? Are you like the crowds? Are you like the average person? We've been together. You know what I emphasize. You, you know more truth than the average bear. Are you also still without understanding? Do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart And they defile a man, for out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. The heart, that is not the organ that pumps blood when Jesus uses this term. The heart, where you do your thinking, that's the heart in the Bible. Where you do your processing, that's the heart. Where your motives are, the seed of your motives, your will, that's the heart. Proverbs 23, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Jesus said at one point in his ministry, why do you think evil in your hearts? It's the place where you think is your heart. It's what proceeds out of that you don't get defiled by your diet you eat food it goes into your stomach it's processed it's broken down by the acids it goes into the uh, duodenum and the small intestine and the large intestine works its way through the alimentary canal that which is not appropriated is eventually eliminated but the real filth comes from the heart through the mouth What comes out of the heart through the mouth is worse than what goes into the sewer sometimes. That's what he's saying. That's where the defilement comes in. It's the human heart. The prophet said the heart is deceitful above everything. Desperately wicked, who can know it? That's why God in the Old Testament said, circumcise or cut away your hearts. Don't just be religious people going through the motions, but cut away those fleshly desires from your heart. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. doesn't matter if you're a vegan, a carnivore, a junk food junkie. None of that has anything to do with your spirituality. When I was single, living in Huntington Beach, California, I was outside on a sunny day, sort of like today, it was just beautiful. It was June, it was about 75 degrees, enjoying the sunshine, the day. I had my Bible, I'm looking down, reading it, my front porch, and I noticed sandals walk up to me. I'm looking down, so I notice a pair of feet And attached to the feet, it looks like a robe, a flowing white robe with sandals comes walking up to me. So I'm thinking, I'm a young Christian. I'm thinking, maybe this is it. (laughs) So so this is how it's going to happen, huh? I look up and there's a bearded man with long hair. And the sun is right, right behind his hair. So you know what I'm thinking. I'm going... You're here. (laughs) Until he started talking. Then I knew, I know it's not the Lord. Because he didn't say, do you know Jesus? Or can I talk to you about your spiritual walk? Talk to you about the cross, the gospel. He said to me, do you eat meat? (laughs) I'm thinking, I don't know. I've heard a lot of like opening lines before. But do you eat meat is not one of them. Not, how are you? What's your name? Do you eat meat? A, a bearded guy with a white robe and sandals, do you eat meat? What is this guy, work for Oscar Mayer? I don't get this. Now, I think I had a, an actual Big Mac. I think I had a McDonald's like in a bag next to me. And I said, well, yeah, I, I do eat meat. And he start, he proceeded to condemn me in my walk with God because he saw that I had a Bible. So he thought, I'm going to ask this guy if he's... A vegetarian. And he went on this whole thing about a spiritual diet pleasing to God. And the guy, I just knew he was a false prophet. So I stoned him. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's right, I'm in the New Testament. I'm not the Old. <laughs> Don't let anybody give you a trip about what you can and can't eat. That's what they were doing then. Jesus said, it's what comes out of you, not what goes into you. It's the heart of a person. It's the sinful nature of a human being. That's where the evil... Needs to be checked. Then Jesus went out from there. And he departed from there to the region of Tyre and Sidon. So now he's going far north. 35 miles north, 60 miles north, Tyre and Sidon. It's up in Phoenicia. It's modern day Lebanon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came out from that region and cried out to him saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed this is an interesting story because this woman a canaanite woman one of the condemned races from the old testament she's a survivor a hanger on she's living in that area and she as a gentile as a non-jew addresses jesus with a messianic jewish title son of david i wonder how she knew that She identified him as the son of David. I know who you are. You're the Messiah of the Jews. Now, she was not Jewish. She had no claim on Jesus as her Messiah because she wasn't part of the covenant people. But she addressed him as that. Son of David, my daughter is severely demon-possessed, but he answered her not a word. And the disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries out after us. You, You wouldn't want these guys counseling anyone in church, would you? Get him out of here. (laughs) Mr. Sensitive here. I think what they're saying is, Look, help this lady so we can get rid of her. And they're sort of surprised that knowing Jesus, how compassionate He was, He's not doing anything. She's crying after us. But He answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus is stating His mission. He came unto His own, that is, His own people. And His own received Him not. Paul's formula was to the Jew first and then also to the Greek. So He's simply stating His primary reason coming as the Messiah for Israel under the covenant stipulations of the, Old Co- of, of the Old Testament. That's why I was sent. Now listen to her. Then she came and worshipped Him saying, Lord, help me. Now she's unflustered by this. She didn't go, oh, okay, well, I'll go now. She has a direct approach. She knows that the only hope for her daughter is this Jesus. If he doesn't help her, she's not going to get help. So instead of approaching her now as a a, a messianic title, if I can't approach you as a Jew speaking to her Messiah, then I approach you as a creature approaching her creator. Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Are you offended yet? She said, yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. And Jesus answered and said to her, oh, woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Now, let me give you two things to help you understand what was just going on. Number one, context. Number two, language. Context. The setting is a dinner table in a home where you have a pet at home, a doggie, looking for crumbs. Do you have a dog at home that does that? I do, and I spoil my dog. <laughs> Number two is language. The word that Jesus uses for dog is aptly translated little dog. In Greek, it's the diminutive form of another word that is used generally for dog. That's the scavenger type of dog the kind that roams in packs, the the mongrel type of dog. But the word Jesus uses is a diminutive form of that, which means and can only mean a pet, a little puppy, Fido. Or in my case, Mac. That's my dog's name. Mac's always under the dinner table and always knows that I'm an easy target. (laughs) If there's anybody else at the dinner table, he just kind of comes right by me because he knows that I'm the one that's... I, I, I do, I spoil him. So... Jesus uses the term little dog speaking to this lady, and here's why. The Jews would call Gentiles many times dogs, Gentile dogs. They meant the scavenger dog that goes and packs. Jesus uses a different term for the Gentile, a little pet, a puppy dog. And he does that to draw out her faith, and it works. Because her response is beautiful, and that's why Jesus remarked on it, is, yes, Lord, even the little dogs eat crumbs which fall from the master's table. She's saying, you know what? I know my place. I'm not under the covenant that the Jewish people are under. I don't have the right to ask for the choice morsels like the covenant people of the Jews. I just want the leftovers. Just throw me the scraps. Could you just give me the leftover mercy? That'll be enough to heal my daughter. That's all I want. I have no claim on you. You're not my Messiah. You're the Jewish Messiah. I get that. And so I take my place at your table, Lord, as my master, and I'm the little pet puppy. Would you just throw me a scrap? And that's why Jesus said, Oh, woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. Her faith was persistent faith. Jesus said, "Ask, seek, knock. It means continually do it. You know, what if she would have said, Okay, well, see you. Bye. Now she goes, Oh, wait, uh, the son of David. No, no answer. Get rid of her. Get her out of here. I said, Look, I've come for just the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Lord, help me. Well, you know, it's not right for me to take this food that is a portion for the covenant people, the children of Israel, and give it to the little pet puppies. I know I'm a pet puppy. Just throw me a scrap. Persistent faith and humble faith. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Jesus departed from there, skirted the Sea of Galilee, and went to the mountain and sat down there. And great multitudes came to Him, having with them the lame, the blind, the mute the maimed, and many others, and they laid them down at Jesus' feet, and He healed them. So the multitude marveled when they saw the mute speak, the maimed made whole, the lame walking, the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Now, did everyone who lived in the Galilee towns, did everyone come to Jesus? No. No. There were interested people. There were some who came to listen to Him talk. There were some who came because they wanted a free lunch, the miracle of the food. But the people who really came to Jesus were people who knew they couldn't live without Him. The lamed. The maimed. The blind. Unless Jesus touches them, nothing's going to change. They were so aware of their need, they wanted to get around Jesus. Those are the people. People who know their need, admit their need, those are the ones who are saved. People who never admit, oh, I'm good enough. Those are, that hell is filled with those people. They never admit their need, they never come for forgiveness. And Jesus called his disciples to himself and said, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and and have nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. How merciful is that? This mercy ministry of healing lasted apparently three days. They're out somewhere in the fields, in the wilderness. And Jesus wants to give them a meal before they go home. His disciples said to him, Where could we get enough bread in the wilderness to fill such a great multitude? Jesus said, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven and a few little fish. Okay, now stop right here for just a moment. We're dealing with a miracle that sounds and looks a lot like a miracle we've already covered, right? That was the feeding of the 5,000. This is the feeding of the 4,000. And... Critics like to say, well, you know, it's really the same story and it's just uh, they got the numbers wrong. There's differences in these stories that are night and day, two different accounts altogether. There was the feeding of the 5,000 that Matthew records. And then now is the feeding of the 4,000 that he records. What are the differences? Difference number one, when Jesus fed the 5,000, which we already covered... They were with Jesus one day only. Here they're with Jesus three days. Difference number two. In the feeding of the 5,000, the first one, Jesus commanded the crowd to sit down on the grass. And Mark even says the green grass. So it was probably late winter, early spring. Now it's just the ground. They're not commanded to sit on the grass, probably because the grass doesn't exist. Uh, It's probably summertime and it's burned up. Number three, different, third difference, in the feeding of the 5,000, there were five loaves and two fish. Here there are seven loaves and a few small fish. Different numbers altogether. Fourth difference, in the feeding of the 5,000, there's how many baskets left over? Twelve. Twelve. In this miracle, the feeding of the 4,000, there are seven, it says, large baskets. And five, here's the fifth difference. In the feeding of the 5,000, that was around Galilee, a Jewish population. This is part of the Decapolis. The Decapolis means ten cities. It's a conglomerate, a network of ten Gentile cities. So it's a different population base altogether. So, verse 34, Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, seven and a few little fish.' So He commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground. And He took the seven loaves and the fish, gave thanks, broke them, gave them to His disciples, and the disciples gave to the multitude. So they all ate and were filled, and they took up seven large baskets full of the fragments that were left." I'm a little bit amazed at the disciples. Um, you would think that when Jesus said, how many loaves do you have? Because right before that, they go, how are we going to do this? How are we going to feed this big multitude? It's like you would think one of them would go, oh, wait, 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 wait. I remember something really cool happened recently. You fed 5,000 men plus women and children. But how quickly we forget I don't think that miracle happened like a few days before that. There was probably some time that transpired. And as time goes on, we tend to forget these things. The right answer would be, uh, well, uh, I don't know how you're going to do this uh, because uh, there's no bakery around here, Jesus. But that's not a problem. You've done it before. You're going to do it. I don't know how you're going to do it, but you'll figure something out. It's just going to be fun to watch. So, Go for it. Do something cool. One of our problems is if we can't figure it out, we think it's not going to be done. Can't be done. Our problem is we know too much. You're an engineer. And so you go, oh, I don't know how I can figure it out. It's just, I'm, oh, it's just impossible. Um, that was Sarah's problem. When the Lord said, Abraham, I'm coming back within the year, and Sarah, your wife, is going to have a son. And she's behind the curtain, and she goes, That's the funniest thing I've heard in a long time. Because she's an old lady. No, that can't happen. I'm a woman. I know about these things. You're a man. Obviously you don't, (laughs) even though you're God. So she starts laughing. Our knowledge can get in the way of things. I marvel when I see a 747 take off the ground. Look at that. You know, you know what that thing weighs. You know how much luggage overpacked luggage is in that thing. (laughs) And yet, why does it fly? Any engineer knows. Well, it's simple. Even though there's a law of gravity, and that thing weighs so much, and gravity demands it stay earthbound, there are other laws that supersede the law of gravity, like thrust, aerodynamics, lift. And those laws, when employed, supersede even the law of gravity, making that huge thing fly. Okay? That's how you explain a miracle. God has another set of laws... That he applies to this situation. It's not impossible. It's like, pff, easy. Watch this. Done. And so they were fed. They were filled. Um, real quickly as we bring this to a close. And, and I'm not reading the last two verses, though I will. But as soon as I read them, you're going to close your Bible. So, so... um, Here's the deal. How did Jesus do the miracle? By using what was there and by using the people that were there. Now, did He have to do it that way? Now, Could could Jesus have just said, watch this, and all of a sudden, manna would fall from heaven. That That could be possible. Or and then In-N-Out Burger in everybody's lap. (laughs) Blake's, green chili, whatever. But he uses people to do his work. He does the miracle, but he uses the people to perform the miracle. Now that is exactly how evangelism takes place. God has the message that is a life-changing message, but he entrusts you with it. He says, pass the bread out, pass the fish out, get her done. I'll give you what you need, I'll supply it, but you go pass it out. Now, God could use angels to get the job done. He He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He could get it done with angels. In fact, in the tribulation period, God will dispatch an angel to fly through heaven with the everlasting gospel that everyone on earth will hear it. He's going to get it done that way. But he has chosen to use the foolish things, us. That's beautiful. What a partnership. Okay. Now those who who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And he sent away the multitude, got into the boat, and came to the region of Magdala. This is just a couple miles north of Tiberias. It's on the western shore of Galilee. Remind me, if you're going to Israel in May, when we take the boat ride from Tiberias and we go over toward the museum, I'll point out Magdala on the left-hand side of the boat. You'll see it. That's where they went. They had a little port back then. We're out of time. I had some other things to share, but we'll have to wait. Father, thank you for your word, for the life and the ministry of Jesus, and how he loved and had compassion on people, and how patient he was with his men who were learning what he said meant, and if it was all about eating food or it was about a spiritual reality that went deeper than that. Thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for entrusting the glorious treasure of the gospel. And to think that you would use our words, our actions, our lives to eternally change people we come in contact with. And you would feed multitudes. It it marvels us. And we're grateful you've done it in our lives and you do it through our lives to others. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org.